We're continuing with our sermon series called There's an App for That, so kind of practical ways to kind of exercise our faith day to day. And we all uh, have had to deal with difficult people. And sometimes I think we're kind of, all of us are kind of on this spectrum. On the one end, and maybe there's a few of you here today, you're thinking about this and, and you're kind of, you know, you're like, well, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I can't really think of that many difficult people. And I want to let you know that you're in complete denial, but it's nice where you live, and so you have that going for you, and so that's wonderful. And then on the other side of this, you're sitting here and you're counting them off, right? And you're pretty much thinking of everybody you know, and you're thinking that they're pretty difficult. And then if that's you, I just want to kind of gently come to you um, with all the love of Jesus in my heart, and I want to just say to you gently that if that's you, you're the common denominator, and you're the difficult person, okay? So that's the other thing that's going on here. And pretty much, pretty much all of us live in that spectrum, right? We pretty much all live in that space. We're dealing with people one day or the next, kind of who cause us kind of difficult situations. And so the thing about dealing with difficult people is this. We're gonna, we're gonna start out, we're gonna, confession is good for the soul. So I'm gonna kind of ask you to just trust me. We're gonna go through a little exercise here. I want you to turn to someone near you and I want you to say to them gently in love, I want you to say to them, you can be a little difficult sometimes. Okay, ready, go. Mm -hmm. People really get into this one. It's happened at every service. People get a lot of joy out of that, right? Um, and now the next piece of this is just a little bit more difficult, um, and other people get joy out of this, but what I want you to do now is I want you to turn to that same person or people that you just accused of being difficult, and I want you to turn to them and I want you to say, and I can be really difficult sometimes. Go. <laughs> people enjoy that one too, just for different reasons, right? So here's the thing, when we're talking about dealing with difficult people, the reason I had us go through this exercise and had us set this up, because the truth of the matter is when, it's, when the subject is difficult people, for some reason, every time, no matter what, we are able to see around the log in our own eye to find the speck in someone else's, right? Every single time. And so if we're going to talk about restoring relationships and if we're going to talk about living in Christian community, the truth of the matter is some of us might be tempted to be thinking about, well, I wish that person was hearing this. They really need to hear this, right? But the truth of the matter is the most difficult person that any of us are ever, ever going to have to manage or deal with is ourself, right? It's the person that you see in the mirror. And so that's how I kind of want to frame what we're going to go through and do here in these next, uh, this next little while as we're talking, going to be talking about this passage uh, that Jesus spoke of and, and talking about dealing with difficult people. The most difficult person that we ever are going to have to deal with is ourself. So with that, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to dig into Matthew 18 today. Uh, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was a tax collector. So Jesus found him along the side of the road, and he was collecting taxes, and he was not a very nice person, and nobody liked him. And Jesus called him, and he said, hey, you, why don't you come follow me? And Matthew walked away from that lifestyle then, and he began to follow Jesus. So in my imagination, I would guess that Matthew knows quite a bit about what it means to have Jesus come into your path 
and then change you for the better. He went from being kind of a thief, a tax collector, um, somebody who was certainly uh, not very easy to get along with, and he became transformed by the time that he spent with Jesus. And uh, by the end of Jesus' time here on earth, Matthew was a new person and saw himself in a new way. So I think Matthew has a unique understanding of this. When Matthew writes his gospel, he has some different points along the gospel where he is set out and just kind of really driving home some of the things that Jesus said. And so uh, Matthew is chapter 5 through 7, uh, chapter 10, chapter 13, where we are today, chapter 18, and then later, chapters 23 through 25. There's a lot of just focused things that Jesus said. So that's like nine chapters. If you wanted to read a little over a chapter a day and really get kind of a crash course in things that Jesus said, that would be a really good place to start. And if you do that, you're going to find that in some cases, Jesus repeated himself, or he said kind of the same idea more than once, or uh, at least Matthew remembered it that way, and so that's how Matthew put it together. And I don't know about you, I don't know how you approach the Bible, but if Jesus, the Son of God, says something more than once, I would consider that maybe we could pay attention to it, because maybe it's important and maybe he wants to know about it. Now, if you go through and you read those things that Jesus said, the truth of the matter is, it's going to be challenging. Like the things that we're going to talk about today are challenging things because Jesus kind of comes into us where we are, but then challenges us and asks us to move beyond that. And so what we're going to hear um, of Jesus' words today is are certainly challenging teachings, but one of the things that Jesus repeats himself on is on the idea of sin and temptation. Um, Jesus says earlier in chapter 5, you know, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, it would be better for you to cut it off. It would be better for you to cut off your hand and throw it away than to let it lead you into temptation. Or if your eye causes you to sin, it would be better for you to gouge it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to go through life uh, physically intact but never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is exaggerating to make a point, right? Hear that? Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. But I think that we need to understand and realize that Jesus understands how serious sin and temptation actually are. Because Jesus knows what it's going to cost. And Jesus has spent eternity up until this point when he came to earth, he has spent all that time in community, perfect communion with his heavenly father. And he knows how incredibly amazing and wonderful and beyond anything we can ever imagine, he knows how incredible that actually is. And so he says, you think you need your hand, but I'm telling you, if it came down to your hand or eternity with God, you would choose eternity with God. And so he wants us to understand that sin and temptation are so serious and we have to root them out relentlessly from our lives. So that's just one of the ways that Jesus starts this here in chapter 18. And then the next thing he, the, the, the book actually opens in chapter 18 with the disciples are kind of sitting around and they're asking Jesus, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who, you know, like in the kingdom of heaven, like of all the people, like who's the best? And they're thinking about their heroes. They're thinking about Moses or King David or maybe Joshua or, you know, maybe some of their judges. They're thinking about these powerful people who led God's people and who are probably warriors and, and uh, conquerors. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking, and so into their midst then, instead of talking about a conqueror, Jesus brings into their midst a little child. And Jesus says, if you want to know about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must become like one of these children. Well, what does he mean by that? He means you must become humble, 
You have to know your need for God. Again, he hearkens back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's calling back to all these characteristics that you can't deny are, are part of God's kingdom, are the greatest in God's kingdom, humility, meekness, vulnerability, understanding our need for God. Again, he's, he's saying it again. He's repeating himself. And Jesus is talking about children, yes, but he's also talking about those who are vulnerable and outside in different ways as well, socially, economically, spiritually, those who are weak and understand their need for Jesus. And he goes on to say in his exaggeration fashion in the way he's speaking to the disciples at this time, he goes on to say, by the way, if one of you would cause these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you really to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Again, because temptation and sin and pride are all, they're, they're not, they have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And to cause one to stumble is, is something that Jesus says, you cannot be a part of that. You, you need to root that out. This is challenging teaching, right? Because we can all think of ways that we ignored someone who was vulnerable. So yes, what Jesus is saying right now is, is challenging. It calls us to account uh, for who we are. This isn't exactly, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice, right? It's, it's serious, and it, and it calls us, it, it appeals to our heart, it calls us to account. Jesus goes on then, and he gives kind of an abbreviated version of the parable of the lost sheep. And at the end, he says, uh, you know, there's rejoicing when this one is found. And he says in uh, chapter 18, verse 14, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. And by little ones, he means, of course, the vulnerable children, yes, but those who are also on the outside who are vulnerable, but then he says they should not perish. He doesn't mean death in the way that we think of it, but he's talking about separation from God. It is not the Heavenly Father's will that even one of these meek, vulnerable, humble people should be separated from their Heavenly Father. And so everything that Jesus has been talking about up to this point is entirely about humility, and it's entirely about our position below God and the way that God has set things up and remembering who we are before a holy, perfect God. Uh, N.T. Wright is a theologian, and he um, is very, very smart, and preachers everywhere are indebted to this guy. And he said that humility is what counts in God's kingdom because pride and arrogance are the things which, more than anything else in God's world, distort and ultimately destroy human lives. That pride and arrogance, more than anything else, distort and destroy. So when we look at Matthew 18, we can look at these kind of headings in our Bible and we can think, you know, somebody was trying to make it easy for us, but then it ultimately makes it look like Jesus was just kind of picking and choosing and pulling topics out of the sky, but when it really couldn't be further from the truth because Jesus is teaching about humility, he's teaching about letting go of pride, and it's in this context that then Jesus begins to talk about what to do if a brother or sister has sinned against you. That's not an accident, right? So let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And Jesus has some really earth-shattering advice. He says, if a brother or sister sins against you, wait for it, go to that person and talk to them about it. Right? Like, that's really not that big of a deal. However, 
I don't know, I wasn't around in the first century, but I'm going to venture a guess that first century people are not that different than 21st century people, and that there's a tendency, maybe instead of going to that person and talking to them about it, maybe there's a tendency instead to go to every other person that you see ever and tell them about it and just kind of ignore the person who actually kind of sinned against you, right? Uh, that is gossip, and it makes us feel like we're very smart and we're very interesting and we're very good conversationalists, and it lets Let's us paint this other person in whatever kind of light that we want to, but it's not a helpful way to deal with conflict. It will generate infinitely more conflict, right? So that's one way that we tend to deal with it. The other way maybe is we just kind of push it down and say, you know, it's fine. It's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I'm a good Christian, and so I need to forgive and forget except for that we neither forgive nor forget, and it just kind of sits there and stews in us, and over time it just ugh, it turns us up, right? That's no good. Now, on the other hand, there is maybe just a little shred of a morsel in there, maybe, because some of us are walking around, and the truth of the matter is, if we're going to be honest about it, some of us are way too easily offended, right? Like someone says or does something, and they never intended in a million years that this would be offensive to you, but everything that happens is actually kind of offensive to you. And so you're walking around and you're carrying this, and all before you know it, you're making up, well, she always, and he never, and blah, 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 because everything is, has offended your spirit in some way. You're, you're, you have an offendable spirit, and that happens to you all too easily. So as far as I can tell, there are kind of these four options to deal with it. One of them is Jesus' way, Jesus' way, um, newsflash, it's the best. And then the other three ways really ultimately have everything to do with pride. They have everything to do with pride because gossip makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us feel smart, at least better and smarter than the person that we're talking about. And kind of burying it and saying, well, I'm a good Christian. I'm not allowed to get angry. That's not true. That's a false pride. That's hanging on to works righteousness, and, and it's not working anyway. And then the third one of being too easily offendable, that's a pride issue where you don't feel that you should ever be stretched or you don't feel that you should ever be challenged or that anyone should ever disagree with you because after all, you're right about everything all the time. So these are all issues of pride. And so Jesus says, here's the deal. You're going to, if you want to do this right, you're going to go to that person. You're going to talk to them directly. Well, the thing is, in order to do that, that has to be done kind of prayerfully and with humility, right? Because when you go to that person, you need to kind of be at least halfway expecting that in conversation with them, you're going to find out that maybe you bear some responsibility in this whole thing, right? Because we're all sinful, and so maybe we said or did something as well. We don't, we don't know until we humbly go to that person prayerfully and consider how, what we need to do possibly to help make amends in that situation. So Jesus says, hey, if that works out, that is awesome because you have gained a brother or sister. That's fabulous. Have you ever been restored to someone? Like there was a misunderstanding and you talk it out and genuine, not surface level forgiveness, but genuine forgiveness takes place. After that, you're closer to that person than you ever were before the conflict because you have worked through. Jesus has, the Holy Spirit has been a part of that relationship, a part of that meeting, and you're restored to one another. It's amazing. Jesus says, that's awesome. But if that person by chance doesn't listen to you, then Jesus says, go and get two or three witnesses. Now, this kind of goes back to Old Testament law. Um, that was part of their 
court system and to testify and to bring witness, you had to have two or three people who could corroborate your version of events. And so Jesus says, get two or three witnesses. Now, you know, if you want them to be objective and to be taken seriously, it probably shouldn't be your mom and your best friend, right? It should be somebody objective. But again, it has to be done prayerfully and with humility because there's a chance your witnesses might say, you know, honestly, you're at fault here too, right? So we have to be ready for that. And then Jesus says, and if that doesn't work, then go to your church. And it's not like we're going to parade you up here and then listen to your side of the story and listen to the other side of the story, and then we get to raise our hands and vote and decide who wins. That's a reality TV show. That's actually not what's going to happen at all. But instead, maybe you have a life group and you take it to the folks in your life group. Or maybe there's some trusted leaders that you say, you know, we need, to, we need help working this out. And Jesus says, do that. And, and take it to your church community and see what can happen then. And then at this point, Jesus gives a teaching that is both incredibly beautiful and helpful and simultaneously incredibly challenging. Here's the helpful part. Jesus says, after you have done that, after you have prayerfully and hum humbly uh, talked to that person, after you have talked to them with witnesses, after you have brought your case to the church, if that person still won't listen, then essentially Jesus says, you have done everything that you as a human being can do in this situation, right? You do not have to carry a burden for this anymore. Jesus says you are released from it. Lo and behold, Jesus teaches about healthy boundaries. Isn't that wonderful? But then the challenging part of that teaching is that Jesus says, if that person still will not listen, then they must be cut off from your community. And we read that and we think, whoa, uh, Jesus, that's not very forgiving. Like, what about like 70 times 7? And Jesus, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this teaching. But the thing is this, if someone has come into your community and if they will not listen, if they won't hear what you've said, what other witnesses have said, if they won't hear what the church has said, then that person, their soul is distorted and destroyed by pride because pride distorts and destroys. And if there is that kind of pride in your community, it will distort and destroy your community. And Jesus says it cannot be left to be a part of your community because it will distort and destroy. And remember, Jesus' ultimate goal in everything is to bring us into community with God, but that pride will prevent that from happening. So Jesus says you have to take it very seriously. You have to take that kind of pride that distorts and destroys with the seriousness with which it warrants. I think, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the presenting issue is, right? Like, if it presents that someone is short-tempered or someone is prone to lying or if someone is stealing, that's the presenting issue, but it's the pride that says, no, I don't have to change anything. It's the pride that says, no, this isn't really an issue for me. I mean, think about it. If there's ever been anything in your life that you've wanted to address, odds are good that a few times around anyway, the first thing was to make an excuse right, about why it's really not that big of a deal. That's our pride telling us that we don't actually have anything to worry about because pride distorts and destroys. I think it's so interesting. Uh, when we look at Genesis, we look at Genesis chapter 1 and the very first people, right, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God has given them every single thing they could ever possibly need. He's given them this beautiful place. Everything is awesome. And I think what's really interesting, as I was kind of rolling this over this week, 
God gives Adam and Eve a job to take care of the land, to have children, to uh, be productive and effective. God gives Adam and Eve an opportunity to have healthy pride. God gives Adam and Eve the opportunity to take pride in a job well done. And as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the difference, and I was thinking about what flips the switch from a healthy pride to an unhealthy pride, and I think that a healthy pride realizes our position before God, and a healthy pride realizes that we actually aren't responsible for any of it. It's just leaning in to who God has created us to be leaning in to the job that God has given us. I think we can uh, really get a good sense of this if we think about children or grandchildren. Like we see them do something. If you have a grandchild that's very young and they're growing, (laughs) they aren't doing anything all that spectacular. They're only doing what they were meant to do, but you're proud of them because they are leaning into who God created them to be right? So even think about tending a garden or any of those different things. You see uh, flowers bloom or you get vegetables or that kind of thing as a result of your work, and you're proud of that even though, honestly, you didn't have that much to do with it, but you see it leaning into what God created it to be, and so we take a sense of healthy pride when we see others or even ourselves leaning in to who God created us to be. But it flips and it becomes unhealthy when we decide that what God has created us to be is not enough. It flips when we realize we get this kind of sense that we know better or we know more. And that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, right? So they're in the garden and the serpent comes up to Eve and the serpent didn't have to straight up lie or make anything up. The serpent just had to twist what God said just a little bit and made Eve think that she was missing out made Adam think that there was something more that they were missing out on, that God was holding out on them. And so this sense of healthy pride in what God had given them became an unhealthy pride and I want more, right? And so uh, Eve is tempted and she eats the fruit and then Adam's hanging out not too far from there. He watches this goes down. He sees that on the outside, nothing happened. And so she offers him the fruit and he says, yeah, why not, right? And as soon as they eat that, then their eyes are opened and then they are full of shame and they are embarrassed. And in what has to be then that evening when God came into the garden, one of the most dramatically over rhetorical questions ever, God shows up in the garden and he says, hey, What are you guys doing? Where are you? Right? But they're hiding because they're afraid, because they're ashamed, because they're embarrassed, because unhealthy pride had taken a hold of both of them and had distorted and destroyed what they had with God in the garden. And so if our original sin is believing that we know best, and if our original sin is that we want to be God of our own lives, then it's pride that's this murky, sticky, nasty, slimy stuff that actually makes us think that that's a possibility. There is no part of us before that that believes that being God of our own lives is possible except for pride. So I'm preparing to tell this, you know, give this sermon this week and talk about pride and talk about, you know, managing ourselves. Really where I started was with managing ourselves, you know. 
And so I'm working on this earlier in the week, and God is just, is just hilariously funny. And so as I'm working on this, like God's like bringing all this stuff up, and I'm like, okay, yes, I'll, I'll have to deal with this after I'm done with this. See how I made that excuse, right? I'm going to deal with this. I made this excuse uh, later, you know, because I couldn't really deal with it right now. I mean, I'm really busy. And so um, I'm going along, life's happening. And then in my life, as in all of our lives, Thursday happened. Now, I don't know what Thursday was like for you. In the scheme of things, now, in hindsight, everything's fine. I have four kids, and if you have children, you know that (laughs) something can happen, and then it just like completely derails the entire day. My oldest is 15 years old, and then those problems just, I mean, they are... Obviously, the world stops. I don't know if you noticed that on Thursday that the world stopped spinning, but yeah. Um, so, so these problems, they come up and they bubble up, right? And so this ended up consuming all of Thursday, all of Thursday. And then because Thursday got messed up, then all of Friday was messed up. And then because Friday was messed up, all of Saturday was messed up. You see where I'm going with this? And then, messed up according to who? Me, right? Because it's my schedule and it's my time, right? And so... Uh, Then in the midst of of this other thing on Thursday, then a a financial situation kind of bubbled up as well, not in the scheme of things, not serious. In my little corner of Western Hills Drive, kind of serious, but in the scheme of things, not serious, right? Now, I don't know about how you guys handle financial situations and financial stresses. I'm sure that you do it way better than I do. I wish that I could stand here and tell you that when these things come up, that then I just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. You know, thank you for teaching me and growing me in this. I get there eventually, like second or third or fourth or like 21st right? Uh, to get to on my knees and say, okay, God, all right, what have you, you know, let's, let's talk this out. Let's, let's have this out. What, what have you have for me in this, right? What's going on? Um, that is not exactly how I responded in that particular moment. Um, I'm ashamed to tell you that I did not respond awesomely, but, you know, we're getting there. And all of this, frankly, this whole situation, the, the derailment and the, all of it, it was made worse by the fact that I had built absolutely no margin into my life for the second half of the week. Now, why did I have, do you notice how I said that, my life and my week? Why was there no margin in this second half of the week in my life? Well, that's because um, I'm prideful and I tend to think that I can accomplish way more in a 24-hour day than God ever intended for me to accomplish. Why do I do that? Because I'm prideful and I kind of want people to think that I've got it all together, that I'm very capable, that I'm a good person, that if they ask me to do something and I say yes, that I will follow through on it because I'm prideful and I want people to think that about me. So, and then I also think because of that, that if I don't follow through and if I don't do those things, if at the very least, if I don't worry about them, right, that if I'm not the one handling this, then nobody else is going to handle it either because I'm prideful and I'm the only one who can do it. And so if if I'm not going to do it, then no one else is going to worry about it. No one else is going to do it. And we all know what happens if nobody worries about it and does it, right? The apocalypse. (laughs) Right? Now you know that I'm kidding because that is the furthest thing from the truth, but... Pride gets a hold, and pride tells us that it has to be us all the time in every way. Pride distorts anything good, not excluding common sense. 
So I think that it has to be me because my pride tells me that it does. Common sense has gone completely out the window. Now, this all happened, and I'm like, oh, man. And then I'm working on uh, the sermon, and I'm like, you know, I don't have to tell that story, right? Like, really? Like, I could stay up late, and I could find a really, like, impactful, meaning, meaningful, like, emotional video clip. Like, maybe I could have everybody in tears, and nobody would have to see my dirty laundry. I wouldn't have to tell you about how I deal with pride because, honestly, that would make my pride feel better. I wouldn't have to talk about what a mess I am, right? I'm like, I'm kind of negotiating with God. I will stay up all night long and read a book if you want me to. If I can find an anecdote, then, that will explain this in a better way than me having to talk about my mess. And ultimately, the reason I'm telling you is not so that you, you know, feel bad about me, but what God was saying to me, clear as a bell, once I had the time to listen, once I took the time, sat quietly to listen, was he was saying, you know, <laughs> Amanda, when, I f when, when you looked up and realized that I was there the whole time, when you, when, you looked at, when you looked at that, when we started this together, Amanda, we've come a long way, but we're not done. And I want you to hear that plain as a bell. I'm telling you this because you're not done. Whatever it is, whatever the mess is, you're not done. And it's not a suffering or, the, or a pain for the sake of it because it's painful. There's no doubt about it. It's not for the sake of it. It's so that you can learn to trust and learn to get rid of your pride and just grab onto Jesus with both hands. You're not done. And I think that this matters so much for ourselves personally. But if we take a look at the world around us, we do not have to look very far to see how pride and how a lack of reconciliation and how a lack of healthy relationships is causing so many troubles for so many people. I wanted a picture like this, so I just put into the Google search uh, makeshift memorial. And all kinds of pictures come up, right? This one happens to be uh, from Belgium in 2016, where they experienced a terror attack in March. And because of everything that's happened, I had to stop and think, okay, what happened in Belgium? But hate happened in Belgium, and it's happened so much since then that we struggle to even keep track of it all. So there's no way that we can sit here and that we can say that restoration, reconciliation, getting rid of pride is not something that needs to happen in our world as soon as possible. Here's the thing, I believe wholeheartedly that when we look in our Bible and we look and see what Jesus actually said and did, he started with his, his three who were in his tight little circle and then he had the 12 and then the 72 and it went out from there. I believe that one relationship at one time can begin to do the work to reconcile our entire world. And if you think that's crazy, if you think that doesn't make sense, then you need to read what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did because Jesus actually did it. 
We don't receive that grace and that mercy and that love so that we can keep it for ourselves. I mean, it's wonderful and we need it, but we receive it so that we can go out and be reconciled and be restored in our relationships and that God multiplies that. And so a restored relationship here leads to a restored relationship here, leads to another, leads to another. We are looking for people to do that for us. And friends, that will never happen. It has to start with us. Our pride tells us it's not our job. Our pride distorts and destroys. I don't know, I don't know politically kind of what side the fence you're on, and I, and I honestly couldn't care less. I do know this though, Come November, whoever our new president is, I don't get the feeling that meekness and humility and restoration are in the top three things to get done, right? It's going to have to start with us in our relationships and in our community because it's what Jesus did and it's what Jesus calls us to do. When we experience the grace and the love of Jesus Christ that he went to the cross to give us, we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me now who can I forgive because of what you've done for me? How, who can I be restored with because of how you have restored me? That's what this is all about. That's why getting rid of pride matters so much. That's why when Jesus says, whatever you do here on earth, it will be done in the kingdom. What we do here on earth matters. Who we're restored to matters. If pride distorts and destroys us, that matters and it matters so far beyond us because our world is so desperate for the light and the love of Jesus Christ, for the light and the love of Jesus Christ that the darkness can never extinguish. So my prayer for you this week, Hope, is that you share it, that you give it away, that you look for restoration, that you look for ways to root out your pride because it, you have it, and it's distorting and destroying. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the truth that's in your word. Thank you for the ways that you love us. Thank you for the ways you guide us. Thank you. Thank you that however you find us, you don't leave us there. That you welcome us with open arms and that you call us to a life in you, God. Thank you. Lord, as we go out of here this week, I ask that you show us, even when it's painful and uncomfortable, I ask that you show us ways that pride is getting in the way of us leaning into who you created us to be. I ask that uh, you teach us to look into ourselves first, God, to root that out and then to lead with grace and mercy. God, I ask for restoration in this room here today, Lord. I ask that your spirit move powerfully. I ask that relationships in this room that are on the verge, that are on the fringe, that are even looking broken, God, I ask that you move to restore them even today. I ask that you show us how you multiply. I ask that when we call on these promises that you love us, that you have all of this, God, that you show up and you show us who you are. We ask you boldly. God, to do that for us today. Lord, we thank you that you tell us that wherever two or three are gathered, you're there among us, God, so we claim that as well. We thank you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that everyone said together, amen. This is where you go to find that. This is where you go to find what Jesus said. This is where you go to find the strength to get rid of pride and to reconcile. It's his book. There are free ones. You can take one with you. There's really good stuff in there. You should read it. And then if you have questions, you should email me.
okay? Because I would be happy to help you with that. Take it to your life group. Take it to anyone uh, and talk these things through and talk about the things that Jesus actually said because they can change the world. Amen? Go in peace. Serve the Lord.